Well, I think it was fitting today to read Romans 9, 1 through 29. That's really the end of this section. It's, it's one of those places where the chapter division probably isn't at the best place. The, the new chapter really should begin with chapter 9, verse 30. So, so we have this section, and one, one of the themes we see in this section is God's surprising and unexpected sovereignty. You, you know, who would have thought in the 1960s when, when communism was reigning in China and you had the cultural revolution, who would have thought that it was preparing the way for a great evangelistic advance in China. But so it was. So there was a great work of God. Operation World estimates that there are 75 million evangelicals in China. Of course, China's four to five times the population of the United States, but it, but the estimation is that there are 90 million evangelicals in the United States. So the numbers, of course, China is much larger, but the numbers of evangelicals is approximately the same. What an amazing work of God. Or who calculated the work of God in Korea? I mean both ways, right? 30% of the population in South Korea is evangelical. That is so remarkable, isn't it? In North Korea, virtually no evangelicals. Very, very few. God's work is surprising, unexpected, unanticipated. We can't predict it. I think back on the days when Diane and I attended Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. We attended there from 1986 to 1997. When we, when we came there in 1986, John Piper was the pastor. John, John was an unusually gifted and anointed preacher, but he, but he wasn't known nationally at that time. Even in the Twin Cities, he wasn't known that well. Who could have predicted the surprising sovereignty of God? Because God has used John not just nationally, but internationally. I'm just struck again and again as I talk to students how many of them, how many of those called to ministry have been influenced by John Piper. This happened to me on my just most recent travels. I ran into a pastor in the airport from Canada. We talked maybe for five minutes and he told me, you know, the greatest influence in my life has been the ministry of John Piper. You know, just that short little encounter. How many times we've heard that story. God has used this shy person to proclaim his great name. You know, we can't forecast and predict the great work of God, can we? We, 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 we can't strategize where God is going to move next. That doesn't mean we ought not to plan. That doesn't mean we ought not to strategize and think and pray what we are to do. But American evangelicals, in particular, tend to put a lot of confidence in their planning and their strategizing and their investing in vision. All good things, right? Those are good things to strategize and, and, and to think of what God may do. But we always have to recognize that God may blow those visions to smithereens. That He may work, He may work in a way we, we don't predict, we, we didn't see. 
Because then he gets all the glory. The wind blows where it wishes. And that's, that's certainly the story of Romans 9, isn't it? The Jews were the chosen people of the Lord. And how they longed, according to their prophecies, for a new David to come. They constantly prayed for the Messiah to come. What a glorious day that would be. How different life would be then. Their enemies would be routed and everyone would sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. They never imagined. It never entered their mind that they wouldn't believe in the Messiah when he came. That, that's not something they ever contemplated. But, surprise, that's exactly what happened. At least for most of them. Most of the Jews did not believe in the Messiah when he came. That's what the Gospel of John tells us. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He, he was right there before their eyes, and they, they missed him, didn't they? They didn't, they didn't see him. They didn't understand who he was. And why didn't they see him? Why, why did they miss it? I mean, they had the scriptures after all. Well, it was because of their sin, wasn't it? They missed him because of their sin. When the Messiah came, he didn't fit their expectations. It was there in the scriptures, but they didn't see, they didn't comprehend that the Messiah would suffer, that he'd be a suffering Messiah. No one anticipated that. Not even his disciples anticipated that. We read in Mark chapter 8, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that he would suffer. So that wasn't clear to them that the Messiah would suffer. And Paul, we come back to Romans 9, Paul reflects in Romans 9 through 11 on the fact that most Jews disbelieve. And that's even true in our day, isn't it? Why is that so? They are the chosen people of the Lord. Paul wonders, whatever happened to God's saving promises to the Jews? Have the Jews been completely rejected? And we've seen that God's promises are not canceled. God's promises to the Jews will certainly be fulfilled. God is faithful to his word. He's given saving promises to the Jews, and he will fulfill those saving promises. They will certainly come to pass. But God works in unexpected ways. We, we read today in Romans chapter 9 that the chosen one was Isaac, not Ishmael. But do you remember in Genesis when God promised that Isaac would come, what Abraham said? He said, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. In other words, Abraham was saying, thank you very much, but we really don't need Isaac. Ishmael's fine. Ishmael will fulfill the promise. But the Lord said, no, I'll bless Ishmael, but my covenant is with Isaac. Abraham was what? Surprised. Unexpected. When it came to Isaac and Esau and Jacob, who does Isaac want to be the heir of the promise? He wants it to be Esau. Esau's the firstborn after all. He's the, he's the one that's to be the recipient of the promise. But God surprises again, doesn't he? And he says, now, completely contrary to the culture, it is not 
Esau, but Jacob, whom I've chosen. God regularly overturns human expectations with his surprising sovereignty. And that brings us to our text of the day and to verse 24. God has called in his mercy not only the Jews, but also, here's the surprising element, but also the Gentiles. We saw in the previous verses some weeks ago that God's mercy shines against the backdrop of his wrath. And when the Jews thought about the Gentiles, they regularly said the Gentiles deserve God's wrath because they're sinners. And that's true, isn't it? The Gentiles did deserve God's wrath. But the Jews thought of themselves as the chosen and favored people of the Lord. Yes, yes. Although they tended to forget it was mercy. So God saves the Gentiles to show it's all mercy. That any are saved. And the Jews are mainly set aside in this period of salvation history. God doesn't revoke his promise. He will fulfill his promises to them. But the Jews are mainly set aside. And we see here in verse 25 that Paul quotes from Hosea chapters 1 and 2. Let's read those verses. We'll read them in Romans here. In verses 25 and 26. As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called the sons of the living God. So what's surprising, what's astonishing about the citation of these verses? In the Old Testament, these verses are about the future conversion of Israel. But Paul applies this to the conversion of the Gentiles. is, Is Paul misquoting the Old Testament here? Has he forgotten what the Old Testament teaches? I think Paul sees in these verses a truth that transcends Israel. The history of Israel, the very calling of Israel shows principally that God calls those to be his people who are not his people. You know, the Jews are a very small ethnic group, and they're called out of nations, not because they're great, not because they're particularly godly, no, they're idolaters, but to show the mercy of God, to show his wondrous grace. So Paul, in quoting Hosea, is teaching that we don't understand these verses if we don't see that they also apply to the Gentiles. The calling of anyone is due to the mercy of God. Hosea 1, verse 10 says that the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Now that reflects on the promise to Abraham, doesn't it? The promise to Abraham is that Israel will be as many as the sand of the sea. But now Paul is saying this is also true of the Gentiles. So isn't there also a suggestion here that the promise of salvation given to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed, that the the nations would be as many as the sand of the sea or as the stars of the sky? 
Isn't there a suggestion that this is also fulfilled in the calling of the Gentiles? So Hosea, what I'm suggesting, Hosea is not only talking about the salvation of Israel, but it's also talking about the salvation of the Gentiles. Both are true. Gentiles, too, are part of Israel. You know, Paul argues this regularly, doesn't he? In Romans 4 and Galatians 3, Gentiles are considered to be what? Children of Abraham. They, too, if you're a Gentile Christian, you, too, are a child of Abraham. You, too, are part of Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. That promise in Hosea not only refers to Jews, but also includes the Gentiles. Gentiles are the true circumcision. Gentiles have received the circumcision of the heart, Romans chapter 2. Gentiles who believe were formerly not loved, but now they are loved by God. So, so here's our, here's our lesson, right? It is characteristic of God to fold in those who were previously not folded in to the people of God. It is characteristic of God to work in surprising and unexpected ways. We see a distinct turn here in salvation history. And we're still living in this era of salvation history. We, we live in the period of salvation history where God is mainly calling Gentiles to himself. So we, in the Old Testament, he was mainly calling the Jews to himself. But now is the period, Romans 11, where the fullness of the Gentiles enter in. And the Jews, not exclusively, praise God, but mainly, do not believe. And the Gentiles are coming in to the people of God. God is not finished with the Jews. I think there's a future salvation for them. But this is the time of the Gentiles. So those whom we expect to be saved, the Jews, reject the gospel. But how often we've seen this. I think here of the history of Europe. You know, for 2,000 years, we look back over 2,000 years, God has done amazing things in Europe, hasn't he? He has advanced his name there so significantly. So, so much of Europe was touched with the gospel. But now we look at Europe and what the, the glory is gone. We, we, could, we could say over Europe, Ichabod, the glory has departed. I mean, there's still Christians there, but very, very few. God's worked in unexpected ways in saving so many in Europe and now, and now in departing from them certainly because of their sin. Is the United States next? I mean, who knows? God does not disclose these things to us. We don't know what's to hap- what is to happen next. And, and neither, neither am I suggesting that we give up on Europe. We, we never know how God is going to work. Our, our task is to keep working and to keep preaching and to keep sowing uh, as the berries are in Croatia. We, we labor trusting God in his wisdom and his sovereignty to produce the fruit. We, we trust in the mercy of God. 
It would be like God in so many ways, wouldn't it, to shower his mercy again on Europe and awaken them again. God shows mercy where we don't expect him to show it. And he, and he hardens those whom we might not expect him to harden, as he did the Jews and as we see so much in Europe today. I think there's another lesson for us as a church and individually as well. We must not be proud. We must not boast of our theology. We must not think that we are especially suited and fitted to be used by God. We must not think that we are God's gift to the world. We must not think that we have something to offer. I always think at this point of the story of Etta Linneman. Etta Linneman was a liberal New Testament scholar who'd studied under Rudolf Bultmann. But she was an unbeliever. She'd do her, she'd study the Bible and write books about the Bible, very liberal stuff. But she'd write that during the day and then at, at night she'd go home and drink. She was depressed. You know, how was she saved? Was she saved through evangelical New Testament scholarship? Did, did that really strike her and convince her that, that she was wrong? No, she wasn't saved through evangelical New Testament scholars at all. She was saved through charismatic Christians who witnessed to her. They witnessed to her and God opened her heart and she was saved. I mean, what a shocking thing. I mean, honestly, Etta Littemann knew more about the Bible probably than anyone who talked to her. And yet she didn't know the Lord. She didn't know Jesus. And God opened her heart through the witness of these charismatic Christians. So God can use us, but he doesn't need us. His work will carry on without us. I think there's another principle here that we can apply to our lives. So on the one hand, God's surprise and sovereignty, he doesn't need any of us. But on the other hand, we see here that God loves to show mercy to sinners. God loves to show mercy to the weak. So if you feel at this time that you're at the end of your rope, are you discouraged? Are you down? Are you depressed? Do you think you'll never amount to anything? Do you just find yourself sinking lower and lower? Well, remember God loves to show mercy to those who are sinking. God loves to lift up the weak because he gets the honor and the glory. When you feel so weak, God loves to show himself to be strong and to strengthen you in your weakness. If we're proud, God casts us down. But if we're humble, God lifts us up, and he puts a new song in our mouth. He makes streams in the desert, doesn't he? So that the desert blooms. He does it in his way and in his timing and according to his mysterious purposes. We're not talking here about a health, wealth gospel, are we? We're talking about God giving us strength in the midst of our weakness. And and, And I'm not saying... And Scripture isn't saying that the feeling of weakness will depart. Now that feeling of weakness may linger on you. And even discouragement may linger on you. And yet God will strengthen you in it. 
and give you joy in the midst of sorrow. You know, I think again about what God did in John Piper's life. Because John is a very shy person. And and John hated, at least, to get up front and speak to people. God took this shy person who hates, hated to get up in front of people and made his voice powerful for God. Because that brings God glory, doesn't it? To take us in our weakness and to make us strong. God gets the praise when he does such things. I love the William Cooper hymn where he says, Don't judge the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Trust him. Don't try to judge him and calculate what happens in the world. I just have to admit, I'm really prone to this because I always want to figure everything out. And I want to judge what's happening in the world. And again and again, this word helps me. Don't judge the Lord with my feeble sense. Trust him for his grace. Who knows what God is going to do? We, we, we put our lives in his hands. We trust him to direct us. You know, speaking of judging the Lord with feeble sense, if you, if you, if you look at the world in which we live, I don't know about you, but I think about this a, a lot. You look at what's happening in Europe, right? It's, it's on the verge of financial collapse. And is the United States far behind? Well, we don't know, but it certainly, it certainly could collapse as well. And, and then you think of, uh, most African countries. Most African countries, there's a, there, there's a tyrannical leader in charge and there's a lot of corruption in, in those countries. And then you think of Muslim countries where Christians are repressed and persecuted. Or, or we can think of a country like China, which is advancing in so many ways, and yet Christians and others who are against the state are regularly persecuted as well. So should we be depressed? Should we, would, should we be cast down? And the answer is no. God is working in surprising ways. God loves to make his gospel shine, as he did with the Gentiles in the first century, where things are bleak. His grace shines forth like a diamond in the midst of a corrupt world. So there's always, do you believe this in your own life and in the world? There's always a reason for optimism. There's always a reason for hope because our hope is not in ourselves. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is still the power of God unto salvation. In all those places, God is saving his own. He is calling out a people for his name, just as he has here. Our God reigns. He shows mercy to the weak And he's working out his purposes for this world. God saves some and he passes by others. And that brings us to verse 27. Though the number of Israel's son is like the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Isn't that fascinating that he uses the little expression sand of the sea? I mean, that's the promise that was given to Abraham that Israel's uh, seed would be countless. 
that, that the, 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 the number of those saved would be as the stars of the sky. And yet here he says, that promise will come true eventually, but here Isaiah says in his own day, well, actually, it's not as the sand of the sea. It's only a remnant. That's still true in Paul's day as well, wasn't it? Israel expected when the Messiah came that the number of believers would be like the sand of the sea. Well, it wasn't so. Isaiah had predicted it. They weren't as the sand of the sea. There was only a remnant. And so they are condemned by God. Most of Israel failed to believe in Jesus. That's part of the surprise, isn't it? That only a few believed. Verse 28 is a difficult verse, but verse 28 is probably saying the Lord will decisively judge his people who did not believe. Those who failed to believe will face the judgment of God. The Lord will not spare. So here's the other side. The Lord will not spare those who have known his grace and turn against it. If you're here today, you have been favored by God. If you're here today and you've been in other churches where the gospel is preached, God has shown you incredible mercy. Because you, you have heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You have heard the message that we are not saved based on what we have done. Uh, we, we are not saved on the basis of our works. We are saved based on what Jesus Christ has done for us as our crucified and risen Lord. We are saved by putting our faith in him, not by trusting in ourselves. For most of you in here, you say, well, I, I know that. I'm, I'm very familiar with that message. I know I don't save myself. I know, I know my righteousness is in Christ and not in myself. But here's my point. Most people in the world, the most people in the world have never heard that. Isn't that remarkable? You have heard that message. So no matter how bleak your life is today, you are incredibly favored by God to have heard that message. Children, you are incredibly favored by God that you have heard the gospel, not only in church, but from your parents. What an astounding blessing. What a surprise that you were born in a Christian family, or at least the family where you're here today, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this text says, beware that you do not become like Israel. Beware that you do not become like Israel and harden your heart to this message you have heard. Because Israel heard the message too. Israel knew the scriptures and they turned away from it. They didn't believe. They didn't trust. There was only a remnant. May that not be true of us. That there not, would be only a remnant. But may all of us persevere to the end and believe and trust in the gospel. For to turn away from this message, after we've been favored by hearing it, will lead to a great judgment of God. Because a day of judgment is coming, and he will hold those of us who have heard the gospel 
particularly responsible if we turn away from it. That's what Paul is saying in these verses about the Jews, isn't he? Only a remnant have believed. We read in verse 29, and just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So the presence of any believers in Israel, the presence of any believers in this room is utterly and solely due to the grace and mercy of God. If the Lord were just, he would have wiped out all of Israel. And if the Lord were just, he would have wiped out every one of us. Do you believe that about yourself? Me? I'm like Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, come on. That's what the text says? We're all like Sodom and Gomorrah in ourselves. You know, I thought of this recently in terms of the sexual abuse scandal at Penn State. Don't we think when we read this story, I think, I'm not like that. <laughs> we, we, we put ourselves above those who do such things. We think of ourselves as morally superior we regularly, I'm talking about myself here too, we regularly look at the sins of others and we say, we don't do those things. We're better than those people. We're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. David Brooks wrote recently about the child abuse scandal at Penn State, and this is what he says. So when something atrocious happens, people look for some artificial outside force that must have caused it like the culture of college football or some other favorite bogey. People look for laws that can be changed so it never happens again. Commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from the island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? The proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive? That was the proper question question after Abu Ghraib, Madoff and the Wall Street Follies, and a thousand other scandals. But it's a question this society has a hard time asking, because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to deny the underside of our own nature. How prone we are to forget our own evil. How easy it is to sit in judgment upon others. How easy it is to criticize others and become cynical and judgmental. Are you falling into that in your life? You're basically becoming a moral critic of others and subtly forgetting about the grace of God in your own life? Are we forgetting about our own hypocrisy and our own sin? and our own evil? If we are, we're losing what? Clarity of vision. We don't see ourselves as we are. We don't see that we're like Sodom and Gomorrah in ourselves. And then we're not seeing the mercy and the grace of our God. We're not seeing how stunning it is, how surprising it is that our God saved us but when we do see it, we'll be surprised. Christmas is about surprise, isn't it? 
we'll be surprised at the gift given to us. And when you're surprised and it's mercy and it's unexpected, you're joyful. You're full of joy that you've been rescued by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would amaze us again with your grace. Lord, what a mercy it is to be reminded. It's a severe mercy to be reminded of our sin and then to see the wonder and beauty of your grace. O Lord Jesus Christ, O Holy Spirit, reveal Christ to us, we pray, so that we may see the glory of our Father in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.